fully understand or experience is the judgment of a holy God against sin. God, so often today we are encouraged to think little of our sin and rebellion. God, to think it's not a big deal. Today, God, we are encouraged in our world to think of the idea of a God only existing to serve us and only to make our lives easy and better. God, we in our sin nature prefer to make a God after our own image instead of believing in who you are as you've revealed yourself to us. And God, you have told us, Lord, in your word that you are holy. Lord, that you stand against rebellion and sin because that is the righteous thing to do. And on that cross, we believe that Jesus, our Savior, fully God and fully man, took the punishment that we deserve for our sins so that we can be at peace with you. Lord, that sounds today like foolishness to many. It sounds like something that doesn't make much sense to many today. And yet, Lord, for those who know You, that is our hope. That is our salvation. That is what we trust in. So God, my prayer this morning is not that we'll just hear another sermon from another preacher, but Lord, that You will open our eyes to see and believe who You are. God, that we will let you define who you are instead of us making ourselves the ultimate arbiters of truth and picking and choosing what we like about your word. God, as we see a world around us that is falling apart, as we see those who we love or even ourselves going through trials and hardship that don't make sense, Lord, I pray that you will help us to trust even when it doesn't make sense. I pray, God, that you will help us to believe. So, God, we pray that your Spirit will take these truths and hide them in our hearts. In Christ's name I pray. Amen. Amen. You can be seated. If you've got your copy of God's Word, uh, I want to invite you to open up with me to Exodus chapter 32. Exodus chapter 32. If you don't have a copy, there should be one in the pew back in front of you. I invite you to open up. With me, we've been walking through the book of Exodus this year. We are nearing its completion. And what we have seen in this book is how God is a promise keeper, how he has kept his promises to Abraham and his family, the people of Israel, by showing up when they were in bondage to the Egyptians by showing His power and might and saving them through the plagues and the Passover and the Red Sea. We've seen that this same God didn't just save them and then leave them alone. Instead, He sustained them in their wilderness wanderings. He provided for them of all their needs. He even showed grace to them when they grumbled and did not trust Him. Then at Mount Sinai, we looked at how God entered into a covenant with this people, a binding agreement 
Where if they obeyed Him and lived with Him as their King, He promised to be with them and to bless them and to prosper them and to make them a light to the nations and a holy people. But if they refused to obey Him, if they refused to acknowledge His His goodness and His greatness and His salvation and that He's their sustainer and they instead chose to rebel and disobey and broke this covenant that God who is holy would stand as their enemy. God gave laws, most famously the Ten Commandments and then the rest of the book of the law to Moses, their mediator. Moses brought the law to the people and read it and they heard the terms of this covenant and they agreed and they said, we will follow the Lord. We will obey. And then Moses went back up the mountain to receive further instructions about how they were to worship God in a moving tent called a tabernacle, about the need for priests. And while Moses was still atop Sinai, after 40 days, the people were impatient with God. And they began to look for something else to deliver the goods for them. They decided that the God of Israel, Yahweh, the Lord, and Moses, their prophet and mediator, had taken too long atop the mountain and they needed a different God. So they got everyone's jewelry together and they crafted a golden calf and began to worship it. They broke their covenant with God. And we saw last week how Moses, their mediator, begged God to show them undeserved mercy as they had broken this covenant and deserved the curses and judgment of a holy God, God hears Moses, their mediator, and relents and decides not to destroy them. This week we pick up and see what happens next. Exodus 32, verse 15. It says, Then Moses turned and went down the mountain with the two tablets of the testimony in his hand. Tablets that were written on both sides. On the front and on the back they were written. The tablets were the work of God and the writing was the writing of God engraved on the tablets. When Joshua heard the noise of the people as they shouted, he said to Moses, there's noise of war in the camp. But Moses said... It is not the sound of shouting for victory or the sound of cry of defeat, but it is the sound of singing that I hear. And as soon as Moses came near the camp and saw the calf and the dancing, Moses' anger burned hot. And he threw the tablets out of his hands and broke them at the foot of the mountain. He took the calf that they made and burned it with fire and ground it to powder and scattered it on the water and made the people of Israel drink it. And Moses said to Aaron, What did this people do to you that you've brought such a great sin on them? And Aaron said, Let not the anger of my Lord burn hot. You know the people that they're set on evil. For they said to me, Make us gods who will go before us. As for this Moses, the man who brought us out of Egypt, we don't know what's become of him. 
So I said to them, let any who have gold take it off. And they gave it to me and I threw it into the fire and out came this calf. And when Moses saw that the people had broken loose, for Aaron had let them break loose to the derision of their enemies, then Moses stood in the gate of the camp and said, Who is on the Lord's side? Come to me. And all the sons of Levi gathered around him. And he said to them, Thus says the Lord God of Israel, Put your sword on your side, each of you, and go to and fro from gate to gate through the camp, and each of you kill his brother and his companion and his neighbor. And the sons of Levi did according to the word of Moses. And that day about 3,000 men of the people fell. And Moses said, Today you've been ordained for the service of the Lord, each one at the cost of his son and his brother, so he might bestow a blessing upon you this day. Moses had begged God atop Sinai to relent of his holy anger against Israel's sin. He had been fighting for Israel on behalf of Israel for God to show grace and mercy. But as Moses turns and begins to descend Sinai, a righteous anger wells up inside of him. Halfway down the mountain, he meets his assistant Joshua, and they hear a strange noise, the sound of singing. We saw in our text last week that it was Israel made sacrifices to this idol, that they sat down to eat and drink, and then rose up to play. Likely a reference to sexual sin that was often associated with worship of foreign deities in the ancient Near East. Israel has broken the first two commands that God has given them to have no other gods before Him and to not make graven images. And now they are celebrating that sin by having a party. And just like God atop Sinai, Moses, their mediators, anger burns hot. So he breaks the stone tablets that has God's handwriting on them, symbolizing that the covenant that they had just entered into with God, that they had just said, God, we'll keep all your laws, we'll follow you as king, that that covenant has already been broken, meaning the curses of the covenant are coming. Moses takes the calf by force, burns and grinds and puts it in the water so that Israel can taste the bitterness of their sin. Moses calls his brother Aaron to account because this had happened under his watch and with his permission, Aaron makes lame excuses and tries to point the finger and say it was someone else's fault. And as this happens, verse 25 says that the people break loose out of the camp to the mockery and the derision of their enemies. 
Even with Moses, their prophet, the same Moses that had sent the plagues, the same Moses that had oversaw the Passover, the same Moses that had split the Red Sea, the same Moses who, with God's power, had hit the rock and it had brought water forth to save them and manna from heaven, the same Moses who was their mediator has come down and torn down the calf and is angry because of their sin and they don't care. They are wilding out with a crazy party and even their spiritual leader being there does not affect their rebellion. Israel has been called by God to worship Him alone, but instead they're worshiping idols. They've been called to be holy, but instead they're impure. They've been called to be a light to the nations, but instead they will be mocked by the nations. Israel should be repentant over their sin, but instead they rejoice and celebrate their sin. They should be ashamed of what they've done, but instead they are still proudly partying in revelry, rebelling against God. And it has to stop. Because if it does not stop, then the holy God will destroy them. Not because He's a mean ogre in the sky who never shows grace, but because He is a God of holiness and righteousness. A God who has entered covenant with this people, who has saved and sustained them. They owe their salvation, their bondage being broken, their very lives to Him. And they have spit in His face and rebelled against His commands. And if this doesn't stop, all of Israel will be destroyed. So Moses knows he has to do something. So he steps up in the gate of the camp and he cries aloud, Who is on the Lord Yahweh's side? Come to me. And of all the people in Israel who are given a chance to declare their allegiance and loyalty to the Lord, only the tribe of Levi joins Moses. And God says, because this much stop, radical measures must be taken. Go and slay those in the camp who are celebrating their sin and rebellion against me. And in the end, when all the dust settles of the 600,000 men in Israel, not including women and children, 3,000 of the instigators of this rebellion are dead. It's not exactly the story we tell our kids at Christmas, right? But it's in the Bible. And there's lessons we can learn from a story like this. We can learn from this scene first that sin has consequences. The great lie that many today believe, many throughout history have believed, is that I can do as I please and make my own rules and set my own standards and live with my own agenda and I will not be held accountable in any way. But many also today mistakenly believe that if they are a Christian, that that means that the earthly consequences of their sin and their foolishness will be taken away. We believe wholeheartedly, and it's true, that the moment that a a person repents and believes that they are forgiven of their sins before God, we believe wholeheartedly that with new hearts, 
Believers are empowered to say no to sin. But nevertheless, consequences for sin still exist in this life. That's true of sin and foolishness that we committed before coming to Christ, but it's also true of sin and foolishness that we continue to commit as believers. God's grace and mercy does not cancel out the fact that we reap what we sow. Oftentimes we will grow frustrated with God because of some sort of hardship that we face. When in reality, it's often a result of our past choices or even our ongoing foolishness and sin. We often want God to be a fix-all and think that if we just make the right deal with God, then He'll take away all of the consequences of our foolishness and our sin. But that is not the case. I'm not saying that every time someone faces trials, they're being punished by God. I think that that is anti-gospel. That is against what the Bible says about how God operates. But sometimes the reason that we're going through hardship is because we're acting foolish and living outside of God's design and His Word for us. God is not a bottle of whiteout. He is a holy God who calls us to repent and believe in the gospel. He promises to empower us to be faithful moving forward. But oftentimes that faithfulness moving forward still involves us eating from the table that we've prepared. This scene teaches us that sin has consequences for the people of Israel. But it also teaches us this. That repentance is a matter of life and death. There are two groups of Israelites at Sinai. There's the group who tastes the bitterness of their sin, who agrees with God that it's evil, who are willing to do whatever it takes to make it right. And then there is the other group who is celebrating their sin, has no concern for the consequences, and do not care that they are spitting in the face of a holy God. The first group is willing to put sin to death no matter the cost. The second group is put to death by their sin. And you can tell who's in what group by who takes the Lord's side and by who does as they please. And the same thing's true today. True repentance involves action, not words. True repentance is about prioritizing God's Word and conforming our lives to it. True repentance is about having convictions that lead us to radical obedience and willingness to kill sin in our lives no matter the cost. True repentance is not about miserably moping around through life under conviction all the time, but true repentance instead is being so blown away at the grace of God that has been shown to you that you can't stand to comfortably live in sin. 
Repentance is not about coming to an altar or an emotional, momentary response. It is about a willingness to change because God and not this world and not this life and not our sin is the treasure and the supreme love of our heart. Repentance is a matter of life and death. Repentance is a fruit of God's Spirit being alive and at work in you. Repentance is evidence that our faith is real. Repentance gives us confidence that we have the holiness without which no one will see the Lord. So Moses' question still rings true today. Who is on the Lord's side? The question is not whose name is on a member roll, who has walked an aisle, who has prayed a prayer, who's got dunked in water. About to knock the cross over here. It's not about that. It's about who is surrendering their life to King Jesus and is making choices to follow Him and to believe what the Bible says about the world and about ourselves and about our purpose instead of ignoring and neglecting God because we think we know better than Him. Repentance has legs. Repentance involves change. Repentance is not a decision. It is a posture that we have towards God. Who is on the Lord's side is as relevant today as it was thousands of years ago when Moses first spoke it. Many of the unrepentant fall in the wilderness But even when the party ends, a big problem still exists for Israel. Look at verse 30 with me. I want to read the rest of this chapter. Exodus 32, verses 30 through 35. It says, The next day Moses said to the people, You have sinned a great sin, and now I will go up to the Lord. Perhaps I can make atonement for your sin." Notice here, Moses doesn't just say, you know what, you guys messed up, but just don't worry about it, it's good. There's no consequences. He doesn't say that. He says, you've sinned a great sin. And I'm going to go up to the Lord and perhaps, maybe, possibly, I can somehow make atonement for our sin. Verse 31, so Moses returned to the Lord and said, Alas, this people has sinned a great sin. They have made for themselves gods of gold. But now, if you will forgive their sin, but if not, please blot me out of your book that you've written. But the Lord said to Moses, whoever has sinned against me, I will blot out of my book. But now go, lead the people to the place about which I have spoken to you. Behold, my angel shall go before you. Nevertheless, in the day when I visit, I will visit their sin upon them. And the Lord sent a plague on the people because they made the calf, the one that Aaron had made. 
The party has ended, but a big problem still exists for Israel. And that is that the God of all holiness still stands opposed to them. Moses has taken steps to keep things from getting even worse. But there is a massive difference between stopping the bleeding and healing the wound. And after the dust settles, Moses says, you've sinned a great sin, I'm going to go and see if I can make atonement. The Lord has already, in Exodus 32, prompted Moses to mediate for Israel. Moses has already prayed for God to relent of His judgment against them. Moses has already went down to the base of the mountain and done away with the golden calf and held the leader Aaron accountable and held the people accountable. Moses has already stopped the bleeding. But what to do about the wound? How can this broken covenant between God and Israel be repaired? How can this broken relationship between God and Israel be reconciled? How can these broken, rebellious sinners be renewed? How can God, who is just and righteous, still be holy and not stand against and destroy those who have spit in His face and done evil? That is the great question. And God has not yet finished giving Moses His law. He's not yet finished giving Moses the instructions on how the people of Israel could dwell near God, but Moses had started to notice a pattern. Moses was there when God had saved Israel. Moses noticed that the decisive blow when God saved Israel from their Egyptian bondage was the Passover. When Israel's firstborn sons were protected from the judgment of God because a substitutionary sacrifice had been offered... Moses has already heard enough of God's law that he knows that an altar has to be built and that priests have to offer sacrifices to atone for sin so that an unholy people can dwell near a holy God. Moses has noticed a theme. He's noticed that God's judgment can only be averted, that God's wrath can only be appeased, and that true atonement can only be made by a substitutionary sacrifice. And right now, the God of all holiness is angry. His covenant's been broken. His people have spit in His face. So a sacrifice has to be offered, but it can't just be any sacrifice. And Moses thinks he knows what to do. So he goes back up the mountain and he admits Israel's sin again. And he asks God if they will forgive if He will forgive Israel. And then He says in verse 32, But if not, God, please blot me out of the book that you've written. Moses says that he's willing to take the punishment that Israel deserves. Israel deserves to be blotted out of God's book. And Moses says, take me out instead. Israel deserves death, and Moses says, I'll die instead. Destroy me instead. 
Moses is willing to be their substitute, to be their sacrifice, to be their Passover lamb, to be their whole burnt offering on the altar. He's willing to die that they may live. Consider the love that that kind of willingness requires. Being willing to die for someone is amazing and unexplainable. Some of us aren't willing to get up off the couch to help our spouse. Some of us aren't willing to help a neighbor with an errand or a need because we're so consumed with what we have going on. But we're not talking about getting up or doing something. We're talking about dying for someone else. It is amazing. It is unexplainable. Jesus even says far later in history, in John 15, 13, greater love has none than this, that He laid down His life for His friends. There is no greater love. And we get a glimpse of that kind of love here in Moses. I think probably most of us who are parents, husbands or wives, would say that they would be willing to die to protect and take care of those in their family that they love. But then, many of us probably would also say that if there was some person that was a pain in our butt who was unrighteous and always causing problems and making our life more miserable, and we had the choice to die in their place, we might be a little bit more likely to turn away and say, well, you, you know, you reap what you sow. The people of Israel have not listened to Moses. They have grumbled against Moses. They have attempted to stone Moses. And they have left Moses for dead atop Sinai whenever he did not come back for them. This clearly is a one-way relationship. Moses is far more committed to the people of Israel than they as rebels are to him, their prophet and their mediator. But we get a glimpse of this kind of sacrificial love in what Moses says here. There were times likely where Moses would grow so tired and frustrated with the people of Israel that he would just want to give up, and yet he still cared deeply for them. Like the Apostle Paul later in Romans 9, who says that he would be willing to be cut off from Christ if it meant that his brother and fellow Israelites would be saved. Moses says here to God, I'm willing to die if it means that the people of Israel... We'll be at peace with you. That causes me to pause and ask the question, what, what am I willing to sacrifice so that others will be at peace with God and will know Christ? 
Am I willing to give my time to studying the gospel so that I can have confidence in explaining it to someone? Am I willing to be hospitable and open my home in an effort to show and share the love of Christ with someone? Am I willing in the workplace or the community or at the ball field or wherever to open my mouth and take that conversation to the gospel that has the power to save souls? Moses, the prophet of Israel, later Paul, the apostle, both said that they were willing to die and be cut off from God if it meant that their fellow kinsmen, the Israelites, would be at peace with God. If you read a history book about Christians throughout history, believers have risked their lives to live on mission. Even today, there are missionaries who have uprooted their family from safety and comfort to move to closed countries where it is illegal to be a Christian, where if caught, you will die. And they have done that not because they're just risk-takers, not because they're looking for an adrenaline rush, but because they have the hope of the gospel that can save souls for eternity, and they are willing to take risk and even enter danger if it means that some may hear the gospel and be saved who otherwise are headed to a Christless eternity. And yet even with examples of sacrifice like these, even with Jesus Christ's clear command to make disciples of all nations, we often do not share the gospel and do not talk about God and do not take that conversation to Christ because we love ourselves and our reputation and our comfort more than we love other people's souls. Now, if you don't think all this is real, if you don't think that there's a holy God and that we're sinners and that's a problem, if you think that you can stand above the Bible and pick and choose what you like and you've got your life figured out and you've got the world figured out and you don't think the Bible's true and you don't think it's practical and all that, if you're not a believer, then you're not going to take that kind of risk. But if you say, I follow Christ. I believe in a holy God. I believe I was a rebel who was saved by grace. Then the ultimate purpose and aim of our lives, if that is you, is to take as many people as we can with us to eternity, not because we want to preach at people, not because we want to self-righteously pretend we're better than people, not because we just love to have awkward conversations with people, but because true joy and peace is not found in this world and in the stuff it provides. It's found in God and being in His presence and being at peace with Him. And because we're for other people's joy and because we're for loving other people and sharing what God has given to us, we take that risk. We have that awkward conversation. We think in those terms because that's what God made us for. Oftentimes we don't share the gospel 
because we love ourselves and our reputation and our comfort more than we love other people's souls. But friends, sacrificial love for God and for others, that is the defining characteristic of being a follower of Christ. And what that means is, is we must repent of our selfish hearts and our fear of man and our love of comfort. We must repent of our lack of love for others. We must beg God to stir up our hearts with passion and boldness to reach the lost. Eternity is at stake in how we respond. There's a sign on the church out front. I hate, I hate changing it. If anyone's looking for a way to serve. The reason that the sign out there hasn't been changed in the last three or four months is a mixture of two things. One, I don't want to do it. But two, because what it says forces us to think about what we're doing with our lives. Only what's done for Christ will last. You either believe that or not. Only what's done for Christ will last. Making money will help you to enjoy 70, 80, 90, however many years you have on this earth. Raising kids is obviously important, valuable. Something that we're called to do if God has blessed us with children, trying to be faithful parents. They're going to grow up. Being liked in the community, hobbies. Fighting for causes you believe in, those things are important. But only what's done for Christ is going to last. You can gain the whole world and lose your soul. You can accomplish all sorts of things in this life. And if you've missed the main thing, then you've wasted your life. I remember when I was in college, I listened to a pastor named John Piper... He had preached at a big college conference years before, and I was listening to this message and reading a book that went along with it. And he was talking about the person who lives their whole life for their career and prioritizes it over things so that they can have money and then, um, as a result of having money, have the comfort and the enjoyments of this life. And then they're able to retire young and then travel. He said, imagine if you lived your entire life just trying to retire young so that you could do what you wanted. And then your hobby was traveling all over the world and seeing beaches and collecting shells. And you amass this amazing shell collection. And then you die one day and you go and you stand before God. And He says, look at, tell, tell me what you've done with the time that I've given you. And you say, God, look at my shell collection. Look at all the shells I've collected. Only what's done for Christ will last. God calls us to live on mission. He calls us to make disciples, to spread and share the gospel, to grow up into maturity, to be holy and to say no to sin. All this other stuff, it's not that, it's not, I'm not saying that being a Christian means that you just sit around and read your Bible and preach at people all the time. That's, that's not what I'm saying. 
But if God is real and His Word is true and you're truly believing in Him, then He changes your heart and He stirs your affections for Him so that you realize it's not about you, it's about Him. And the joy that you have in things in this life is a result and an overflow of your enjoyment in Him because only what's done for Christ will last. Eternity's at stake in how we respond. And if we're willing to sacrifice for other people. Notice one last thing. As admirable as Moses' offer is here, it ultimately can't work. Moses can't sacrifice and give his life to take away the judgment of God from Israel because Moses, as faithful as he is to the Lord, is not perfect and is not sinless and therefore cannot atone for sin. So God says, whoever sinned against me, I'm going to blot out of my book. But go ahead and lead the people to the promised land. But in the day I draw near, I will visit their sin upon them. God says, Israel's sin still hangs over them. I see what you're doing, Moses. I see the offer that you're making, but that's not going to work. I'm still going to judge those who rebel against me, he says. But the judgment is delayed. Why is it delayed? Because although Moses cannot atone for sin, another Israelite will one day come who will make the exact same offer that Moses makes here in Exodus 34. He will offer to lay down his life in the place of his people. But this greater prophet and greater priest, this greater mediator before God, this greater substitutionary sacrifice will actually be qualified to accomplish the offer that he makes. Jesus Christ comes and shows up on the scene. And what does John the Baptist say? Behold, the Lamb of God who has come to take away the sins of the world. Jesus lives the life that Moses and Israel and Joshua and David and me and you cannot live a perfect sinless life. And He goes to the cross of Calvary and dies in our place as our substitute, not just experiencing physical agony and pain, but bearing the wrath and judgment of a holy God against not Not his own sin, but our sin. He rose from the grave. Atonement was fully made. Forgiveness and peace with God is granted. Jesus has come because God delays His judgment on Israel here in Exodus 32. And then again and again and again throughout the Old Testament. Jesus came, Paul says in Romans 3, to show the righteousness of God because in God's divine forbearance He had passed over former sins. Jesus came to show the righteousness of God at the present time so that God could show Himself to be just and holy and righteous, but also to show Himself that He is the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Holy, 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 Lord God all Almighty, merciful, and mighty. 
justifier and just, righteous and gracious. The only way we can see the beauty and the character of God on full display is through Jesus coming and taking our punishment, upholding the justice and character of God and justifying undeserving sinners. God passes over sins of Israel in the Old Testament because He knew that the atonement-making, wrath-bearing, forgiveness-offering sacrifice would come. And it's not Moses, it's not Paul, it's not me, it's not you. It's Jesus Christ, God the Son, who took on flesh and dwelt among us. And hallelujah, He came. Because as sinners, we deserve our names to be blotted out of God's book. But God so loved the world that He gave His only Son that whoever believes in Him should not perish but have eternal life. Have you believed? Have you believed? Has your faith produced in you a heart that has been changed to love God supremely? Are you on the Lord's side against your sin? Or are you instead out in the camp celebrating your rebellion? And acting as if you know better than God. Are you stirred up in your heart with a passion to love God and to love your neighbors with the gospel of Jesus Christ? Friends, if that is your story, if the answer to those questions is yes, then all we can do, the only proper response, is to praise God for His grace. But if not, then the word of the Lord says, repent And run to the cross, pray and plead with God today. Admit your sin. Acknowledge and agree with God that it is heinous in His sight. Repent and turn. Commit to changing no matter the cost. No matter the sacrifice required. Believe not in your own good work. Not trying to pick yourself up by your bootstraps. But instead, believe in the finished work of Jesus as the only way to be saved. And surrender. Bow the knee to Christ. Let Him be King and Lord instead of yourselves. Friends, the Savior has come. The sacrifice has been offered. The offer to follow Him has been given. But we must respond. Who's on the Lord's side? Let's pray. Father God, we thank You for Your mercy and grace. God, You alone can recall wandering children. You alone can soften hard hearts. God, You alone can open up blind eyes. You alone can give us the gift of repentance. You alone can draw us near to You. God, my prayer this morning is as we consider Your Word, Lord, is that You will bring comfort to those who are afflicted, but that You will afflict the comfortable. God, my prayer is that those who need to rest in the gospel and rest from their burdens and rest from their trials, Lord, that they will run to Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith. And I pray, God, that those who are pretending to follow Jesus but who aren't really living for Him, Lord, will feel the weight of their sin will show their allegiance to the Lord, will run in repentance to the cross. God, my prayer is that You will do what only You can do. 
Change our hearts. Soften our hearts. Give us new hearts. Stir our affections for You. It's so easy, Lord, to focus on temporary things. It's so easy to ride off a Bible passage or ride off a sermon and think about what's next. But God, right now I pray that You'll help us to meet with You. To consider You. To consider who You are, what You've done, what You've said, what You've called us to. God, help us to respond. Change our hearts. Help us to conform our lives to You. Give us the gift of repentance and faith. We ask these things in Christ's name. Amen. Will you stand together with us?